Welcome and thanks for listening to the Spirit of Time podcast. It's a spirited discussion of watch topics and some of the cool bon vivant stuff that overlaps our hobby, especially fine spirits, craft beer, cocktails, and wine. In other words, if it's boozy, smoky, sudsy, or smooth, we'll probably talk about it. Think of it as a watch-focused happy hour for your commute. We are your hosts. I am Matt. I'm Greg. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Greg, what's up? How are you, buddy? It's good to see you. Hey, Matt. How's everything going? Great to see you today. I am uh, thankfully not hungover in the slightest from our adventures last night at High West. How are you feeling? Oh, man. I'm feeling pretty good. You know, we all kind of gave ourselves, I think, a, a, a bedtime before we all turned into pumpkins. And so uh, I know what re- Matt's referencing is our trip to the High West Saloon of Santa Poco for an upcoming uh, Spirit of Time episode. And uh, I think people are really, really going to enjoy this one. Yeah, stay tuned. This is, you know, our worst spirit of time. And we talk about watches and time related stuff, obviously, but we like to lean, you know, pretty heavily on our other sort of shared interest, which is the adult beverage thing. And some episodes are more watch focused and some are more spirit focused. And this one definitely has to do with the latter. So. And on top of that, without giving away too much, the timepieces are just just as interesting and, and kind of unique. And uh, so I think, you know, people will be, I think, quite surprised at everything we have to talk about. Yeah, totally. Luxury booze, not necessarily luxury timepieces, but they are pretty, <laughs> pretty interesting. But that's not really why we're here today, right? We have a, uh, a great guest. That's right. We've got, um, you know... Uh, I think we've got this uh, a real murderer's row. I feel like of uh, of folks that we've been able to to bring onto the pod over the last few weeks, and and I think right now we're about to tee up one of the uh, like our cleanup hitter at least. Yeah, absolutely. Well, without further ado, we are joined today by none other than Cole Pennington. Cole is the guy who handles the globe trotting watches and history slash aviation beat for Hodinkee. Rinkin. It's probably fair to say that he'd also handle the watches and cars beat in company with James Stacy. If there was like a, uh, you can't see me, I'm making the air quotes here, but a horological romance genre, Cole would probably be its best-selling author. Definitely wow. appeals to, <laughs> not, not that kind of romance, but yeah, um, Cole, it's great to have you here for such a young pod. I, I appreciate you joining us and making the time. How's it going, bud? Yeah, it's going great. And yeah, it, it's a, it's a great opportunity to come on. I know, I mean, we've talked a million times offline and about probably the same things we're going to be talking about on the podcast. So it's, it's a natural evolution to come on and chat with y'all. Yeah, you nailed it. Thanks very much. You nailed it. It was like uh, when Matt said that, um, you know, we were able to put this together. It just, it seemed, it seemed natural and it it just felt like it was just going to be such a fun conversation with a lot of shared interest. And so we're just thrilled to have you. Thanks, Cole. Likewise. Happy to be here. So how about, uh, you know, we've got a wrist check, poor check, right? That's what we do here on, on uh, spirit of time. Um, let's start uh, with our, our guest of honor, Cole. What's on your wrist, and tell us what's in your glass. All right, on the wrist is the the new Synchron Military. Uh, well, I say new; it's not really new anymore. The, the The wave of popularity has maybe passed and left some people unhappy that they didn't get one, and plenty of people stoked on the watch. I think I've seen a lot out in the wild so far. I mean, not in the wild, literally, but figuratively, I've seen folks taking them out diving. I know James bought one. I got one. 
Uh, and in the glass is a Melvin IPA, which is a uh, it's a brewery out of Wyoming, and uh, it's a beer I just got into. I've had once or twice before, and I'm digging it. So, so this is the combo right here: the Synchron and the Melvin. That watch, I tell you what, when it first came out, I was excited by it conceptually, but then you know when I saw it, I was like, oh man, I don't know. That thing is just it. It visually, it looks like a soup sandwich, but it's grown on me. It's a it's a sleeper, and I think maybe there is that subtle thing of like, okay, I've seen it on Cole's wrist and James' wrist, and everybody else that has it. I'm like, oh man, did I miss out? That's it should be right up my alley. I know exactly what you mean, and this happens more and more to me, where something should be up my alley, and then I'm like, eh, you know what? And honestly, that's how I feel about most uh, homage watches. Actually, 99% of the time, that's how I feel. Except this one, I don't know. It, here's the thing, like, you know, you can't buy everything, right? You just can't. So a lot of the times it's pass, 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 pass. And then when this came up, I was thinking, you know, why not just give it a shot? Because it is cool. I mean, it's genuinely cool. It's the price is, is it's priced well enough to take a chance on it. And if it needs to be a catch or at least it can be. And for me, it's a catch. It's like, I actually really love it. And I don't have any other PVD watches in the collection. So it filled that void for me. Um, I say you should keep an eye out for one second hand, man. That's, that's what I say. Yeah. You know, my taste in watches, I think that might eventually kind of find its way floating over my transom. Uh, you'd, you'd be better off for it, to be honest. I'm super intrigued by this Wyoming beer too. I can't say I have a whole lot of familiarity with uh, with the breweries out there. So I'm going to keep my eyes and uh, ears kind of peeled and see uh, what else is out there on that end. I think it's definitely distributed out your way too. It's They're sort of up and coming, sort of cult. Um, I only discovered them earlier this year and, and they're great. Just kind of a lot like Synchron, right? So Perfect, perfect. Matt, tell us what's on your wrist and uh, and maybe what you're enjoying today. Right on. Well, hey, first, just before I let that go, Greg, I think um, Vendome does have that beer. I'm pretty sure. There's our friends at Vendome who we love, and uh, you know, quite sh- quite shortly we'll be releasing another pretty fun episode that we you know that we've teased out before, where we spend some time there. Yeah, totally. Anyway, so on the wrist, um, I see Seiko. There's a uh, Prospects hat on the head of our <laughs> guest, and I've I've got. This is, whoops, sorry, I'll hold that up for you. The, the SLA 021. So this is kind of the, the you know, the plain Jane, big uh, black dial Marine Master, but kind of the latest iteration or Marine Master 300, I guess I should say. But um, just such a cool watch. It's, uh, I don't know, just like that 70s Seiko diver vibe. And on, you know, on the OEM rubber, it just feels like super, super legit. Like I should be on the back of a, a fishing boat pulling in a Marlin or something. And, uh, you know, it's all about, for me, really, it really is all about like vibing with the watch, like how it makes me feel or what it makes me think about. And this is one of the many, you know, cool things about Seiko and brands like that, like Synchron, um, that, you know, harken back to either something we've done or something we want to do. So it's super cool. I love this watch. And I think it is, it really goes back and forth with the, for me anyway, in my collection between the SPB 149 and this as being like the Ur diver from Seiko, you know, even, even sort of above the Grand Seiko, just because this is meant to be used and bashed around. 
Anyhow, so on uh, that's what's on the wrist. On the glass, I'm actually double fisting it and stand by for humble brag because what is this? So I've got a glass of red wine and it's just generic no-name red wine because my brother-in-law and I made this. Ah. So this is a, a Cabernet Sauvignon with a Petit Verdot and this is it's about 90-10. And uh, this is from a vintage of maybe six years ago. I think thereabouts six years ago. Um, it's a, this has been open for a full day, so I want to see how it's. And so this basically means then too that doing out of the bottle that that the it wasn't finished. You were you were you were a little scared that maybe that bottle wasn't going to be existing. You know, just the other last we spoke. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, I've got I think five bottles left of like twenty cases that were my you know, quote unquote allocation from that batch that we made. And by way of background, Cole, my brother-in-law is a, um, he doesn't do this full-time for a living, although he did at one point, but he's a, a trained winemaker and, you know, they live on a vineyard and, uh, in, in good, good years, good vintages, he sells his fruit. And then, you know, other times when the fruit's good enough, but there's a glut, you know, he can't get a good price or whatever. We'll, we'll keep a few tons and wow. make some ourselves. Yeah, cool. He does most of the work. <laughs> But yeah, so that's what's in the glass. And now, Greg, how about you? Wrist check, poor check. So uh, I'll start with the with the drink first. I've got um, the Stone. Uh, if you know, like their Enjoy Buy series, mm-hmm. always great, right? They encourage you to you know put it in the glass and uh, enjoy it and fresh hops and without holding on to them for too long. So this is Enjoy Buy, July fourth. Um, so I guess I'm well, a few days late here now. Late. I think it's still. Yeah. I think we're good. I, I think we're quite nice. It's uh, tangerine, pineapple. Um, it says IPA, but I'm imagining it's a double. I mean, it's checking in at 9%. So, um, I'm feeling pretty good about the whole situation. <laughs> uh, on the wrist is the, uh, Rolex GMT master 16710. Mm-hmm. figured, um, in, in all black, uh, figure we talk about a little bit of globe trotting today. I know, um, a few of us have, uh, either appreciated owned or recently acquired, uh, some version of the GMT master. And so it kind of felt like a good fit for our conversation today. Sweet. Absolutely. Well, speaking of globetrotting, dude, Cole, how was Thailand? And are you back in the States long-term? I am. I mean, I hate, I I don't really like to like only a a Sith deals in absolutes, right? That's kind of (laughs) so long-term or not, who knows? But yes, I mean, of course, like, yeah, I'm back here. I'm not moving to Thailand. No, it was a, a three month stint. Um, and it was really more or less for work. It kind of, the idea is, all right, this, we figured out this whole remote thing works, right? I mean, we know it does. All right, let's take that to the next level. Let's, uh, capitalize on the fact that we're not chained to a desk in an office. Where can you take that and how far can you push it? Well, I used to live there for a while and I kind of, I, I did the watch writing thing there too. And there were a few stories that were kind of, uh, I was leaving stories on the table, so to speak. There were a few things I, I hadn't done that I always thought would be great to do for Hodinkee, but in, you know, the pre COVID world, you just, something like that would be impossible. So I went ahead and just pitched it and I said, you know what, let's, <laughs> let's see if this is doable and got the green light and uh, went over there and yeah, Thailand, interesting time. I mean, much different than when I left it. I left it in 2016. 
mm-hmm. came back and it's yeah, a whole new world. Some good, some bad. I mean, they got absolutely gutted by the, the COVID situation. And in addition to that, they have some very interesting laws surrounding that, which made it difficult to do a lot of what I wanted to do. But ultimately, we did pull off something pretty interesting. Um, so that will that whole thing culminated in a little video series for Hodinky. So it's going to be pretty cool. It's going to be like a, you know, a few episodes. Think Bourdain meets watches meets, I don't know, a history channel documentary or something like that. It's it. uh, it's going to be very cool. So yeah. And then I guess the stuff that's non watch related, like the fun stuff, um, caught my first sailfish down in the Andaman. That was awesome. Did a little road trip up on the Burmese Thai border, kind of skirting in and out of Burma and Thailand, which is like normally that that whole area. There's a little civil war going on there right now, so kind of interesting to, to get to get a front row seat to that. But uh, yeah, it was it was great. I'm yeah, picturing that scene with the photojournalist up at the the terminus of the Nung River. Oh I know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cole, is that you? No, not me, but like if I can channel that energy, I'd be happy, you know? (laughs) Right on, right on. Well, hey, just before I forget, I mean, you kind of teased the idea of of some kind of a video project. I mean, is there a timeline for that? Just that we can put a pin in it and watch? Yeah, I mean, it's all, it's in the editing phase now. So like, that's the hardest part of all this stuff, right? It's, It's not really the, yes, it's the conceptualizing, sure. And the shooting, I mean, that's a lot of rote, hard work getting the shot, but I think the real work is in, like, and also the kind of work I'm more familiar with is really in the storytelling side of it, and that's where we're at right now. So that's, I would say, early, early fall. Like, by the end of the summer, this thing better be wrapped, that's for sure, like, on my end, my personal goal. So... It, what what happens is, all right, you end up going, you know, you, you have the script, and you kind of loosely piece things together and then you find out like oh you know what would really be good here is this piece of archival footage or whatever so then you go try and find that and that holds you up or or you know licensing an image from getty or you go back to the person that you talk to just to make sure that you have the story right even because sometimes you remember things incorrectly so yeah we're in the editing phase and i would say on my schedule this this better be done by the end of the summer so yeah I love the idea of just, you know, like you said, kind of shooting your shot, right? Like, hey, you know, this was, these are some things I've been thinking about for a long time, just, you know, for whatever number of reasons, um, hasn't been able to come to fruition, but let's throw it out there, right? Like, let's see, maybe now this is the time that we could do. And so it's fascinating. I love just the kind of, you know, um, go for it attitude, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing, the timing worked out well with Hodinkee too. It's kind of like Hodinkee 2.0 or it's uh, new ideas are encouraged and when we're actively asked to shoot for the moon, land on the stars kind of thing. And the other thing too, is when you actually get down to it, like, and the data proves this, right? The numbers, there's a story in the numbers, like it doesn't really matter as long as you have a good internet connection and you know, you have decent discipline for me, part of the discipline was staying up late all the time. So you can make meetings on Western hours but, uh, you know, you can come up with some of your best work. I mean, you don't, you hear about people doing their best work after doing something, right? I'm not comparing myself to like Hemingway or anything like that, but you often hear about like Orwell in, in 
Burma and so forth. So I don't know, something like this, I actually see it as like every, it, it should not be abnormal if you're in a editorial position to do something like this, in my opinion, because the readers benefit. Uh, and hopefully going forward, the world has figured that out too, you know? Yeah, totally. Well, you've kind of hinted at my next, the answer to my next question. And that is just my assumption is that this is, this video when it's done is going to be a Hodinkee property and done through Hodinkee. It, yeah, it will be. It'll be done through Hodinkee. It is a packaged series. So it, it, it's not going to be like a signature property, like talking watches or whatever, but it'll be a series and hopefully one that's replicable elsewhere in the world. I actually like back in the day, uh, Prior to Hodinkee, I worked for a travel magazine and did a lot of traveling around and kind of the sideshow to my normal stuff was always hunting down watches and just for fun, like go find the local brewery, go look for vintage watches in a market or whatever. So I ended up doing that around like Siberia, Japan, China, all over. So like this formula can, if it's a hit, which I hope it is, I mean, who's to say it doesn't happen again, you know? I'm sitting here with like the cat eating grin on my face, you know, just in, in anticipation of this. Cause this is so up my street and I, it, I expect yeah, it will be. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of watches in kind of faraway places, you know, we have a, a mutual connection. I think all, all of us together in um, uh, a local watch group guru, Mike Heyman. And uh, you know, recently you did the story about the Movado in space and uh, you know, Matt and I always think about this, want to know what, what your thoughts are. Do you think that will alter the market uh, or the popularity for you know either the Movado or the Pogue? So I, I, I can't say that I thought about that a good bit. What, what was interesting is so you remember, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but there was an episode of Talking Watches with a guy named Greg Selch, Livingston at Night. So what's funny is I just finished, just wrapped that story. And obviously it was in our best interest to kind of keep it quiet, so to speak, until the story dropped and so forth. The other thing is too, and I'll get back to the main idea in a minute, but everything was out there. Anyone could have pieced this together per se. So it's not, so there's that element of it. There's no ownership of the discovery. That that was really, uh, it was out there already. But I guess I would say we wrapped the story and then the next day I go to film Talking Watches and uh, that very watch is on Greg Selch's wrist. I'm like, ah, interesting. That's something else. Yeah. Um, and I was just thinking in my head, like, wow, you better hang on to that because like, that, that's, you know, more special than you think. Um, I don't know. Like when it comes to markets moving and so forth, the deeper I go in the industry, the more I understand that fringe markets are just a, almost a non factor in any of this stuff. Like, yes, the people have some, you know, everlasting laudatory attitude towards the speedy which sure they should but like that's also driven by millions of dollars and a sustained marketing effort uh by omega that so that we never forget that the moon watches ever thing right ever you're never going to forget it and there's going to be a limited edition for the limited edition for the limited edition (laughs) that the moon watch you know so so when it comes to the more like deep cut historical stuff i don't know if there is a market to begin with like, will it bring some watches out of the woodwork because people perceive there to be a market? Like, specifically the Datacron, which is already a weird watch, and there's probably not that many. Uh, I don't think so. And 
among the Space Watch, I mean, you're talking, this is it, right? This is the Space Watch nerd crowd right here. And like, did anyone run out and try and look for a datacron? I didn't. I, I appreciate the story. You did. You did. <laughs> did. raises his hand. Just, right, right. Not, not to seriously acquire. I mean, I, I went to look to see just, you know, a little before and after what sort of the prices on those things were going to be. And you're absolutely right. I don't think they were made in sufficient quantity to even constitute a market as mm-hmm. such, at least, you know, the ones that survive. The, the number that are out there is just so small. And I won't say that the the space watch thing is priced in. It, I mean, it definitely isn't. But at the same time, um, these were not trading. The watches that I saw were not trading at anything like the reasonable price of the Pogue. And even, mm-hmm. even considering, you know, the maybe the past ten years increase in prices that you see with Pogues, um, you know, especially the kind of the correct yellow one mm-hmm. uh, or gold one, whatever you want to call it. And uh, yeah, there's already a pretty significant delta between you know those prices so yeah i don't personally i don't think it's going to happen but um i don't know it's interesting it's uh it it definitely is yeah the the thing is so there's actually if you go to moonwatch universe i I don't know if he's released it yet or there is an excel spreadsheet floating around of every watch that has gone to space and there are watches on there like all right the the belova astronaut is also a space watch too so it's just kind of another space watch. I think the Pogue was interesting because of the the way it came to be. And this one is too. I mean, this is interested, interesting in the way that it came to be. But there are dozens of normal, quote unquote, watches that are also space watches too. I mean, GMT Master, no one talks about that as a space watch. We, we just talked about it. And it's, it's a globe trotting watch, right? It, well, it's also a space watch that's just as important as the Speedy. But no one that doesn't doesn't have much bearing on the market, you know. Yeah, well, we'll we'll come back to that because I have a a GMT related question for you. But yeah, I totally agree. Well, all right, cool. I think the consensus is uh, Pogues are still going to cost what Pogues cost, and that Movado. Good luck finding one anyway. Yeah, that's Pogues exactly. Will be Pogues. I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, hey, um, tell us about this latest adventure. So you're coming to us from Utah. And I think when we talked to you, we were initially going to try to record on Friday of last week. And I think we were talking about maybe having you Skype from a gas station or something, but you were cannonball <laughs> running it across That's the right. country. So how, what, tell us a little bit about this adventure and the car involved, because it's pretty cool. All right. Yeah. So the, so it's in, it, semi, so the, all right, I have to get out here either way. It'd be nice to have a car out here and so forth. So that means driving a car out here. And I don't know, like when I was a kid or whatever, like maybe all of us, big fans of the, the Nissan Skyline. That was kind of the the car back in the day, the Paul Walker car. And even beyond that, I would say like really Forza and arcade games and so forth and also watching some of those like initial de and the mangas from japan like skyline was the forbidden fruit everyone knew about it everyone knows what they look like you know there's the 25 year rule in america where you can bring in anything older than 25 years um and it can be registered legally in everywhere but alaska and hawaii unfortunately hawaii's got these awful laws very you know not not great but that's because of emissions. That's why they do that. But anywhere in, in the lower 48, you can register a car that was brought in 
literally anything, anything with four wheels. And most states don't need it to be inspected. There's, there's no inspection for those cars. So I, yeah, when, when I was in the right position too, I, I took a chance on one. I bought one and bought a bone stock 1995 Skyline GT25, GTS 25T is, is actually what it's called. Uh, and it's like the GTR is the, the one everyone knows. That's the, the really fast one. This is one rung below that. So this is like the, I don't even know. If you have the STI WRX, this is going to be the, like the, uh, actually they don't really even have that, but like somewhere between the normal WRX and the STI. So had this car and that, and pretty much elected this, this car for the duty to drive across the country. And it's a straight shot on route 80. So like route 80, what's funny is you guys aren't, aren't far from route 80, are you? Kind of, kind of far. It, yeah, it would be basically, if, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't have the map in front of me, but it's basically Bay Area over the Sierras. That's I right. think even like yeah. Donner Pass-ish. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, near me, I grew up near 80, and that's the same 80 that you know it goes into San Francisco area too. So it's just funny to think that like it's the same 80 that I've been on, and I've been on 80 here before in, in Salt Lake, right? So you know the the route it's just stay on 80 for a really long time in fact <laughs> yeah. 2100 miles um wow so yeah i used that time we we had a, a day off for fourth of july like on top of the national holiday so used it to pretty much say okay i have x amount of time i have a little window here um this is the time the time to the time is now so packed up the car got in there and uh, pretty much Put in, you know, a few hours, like a teen, teen hour days, like, you know, 13 to 18, somewhere in there, like oh, long days and uh, left lane, foot on the gas, keep an eye out for cops and just go. And uh, <laughs> it, it, Route 80 is interesting. I mean, it's it's very interesting to see how drastic the changes in the country, everything before Chicago, well, Pennsylvania, a little sparsely populated, but then you get into the Chicago area. You also, there's crazy tolls, which I didn't know about. Like there's tons of tolls. And then once you get past like Iowa, it's all free. Everything's free. It's great. You know, and the tolls, that was a huge issue because the, uh, steering wheels on the right, it's a right-hand drive car. Right? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah. I just thought of that. Yeah. So you got to lean over and press the button, take the ticket while there's, you know, people behind you, there's a gate and this has happened once before something happened to me. One time, I also have this this Mitsubishi, which is also from Japan and right-hand drive. And I remember going into a parking garage and I had to take the ticket from, you know, the little machine. So I roll down the passenger side window, reach over. And while I'm reaching over, my left thigh actually knocks it into first gear. And it, uh, <laughs> it lurches forward and hits the gate in the parking garage. <laughs> and uh, so basically... I am very fearful of that happening anytime I'm leaning over. Uh, and especially like, imagine if, if you, you know, pretty much slammed into the gate on a public toll in the, on, on route 80. So I, I was very careful, but yeah. So yeah, that was, that was the deal. Um, tried to do it and like, yeah, inspired by the old uh, cannonball run bids and so forth. And more just the, the general idea, like, if these guys did it in 1970s, you know, carbureted 
finicky cars, I can do it too. And the Skyline is legitimately made for this. Like it is a GT car, a grand touring car. So it's sustained speed, a nice long wheelbase that keeps it steady. And uh, yeah, it just, it hauls ass. So it was a nice drive here, I will say. That is super cool. I, you know, I'm I'm ashamed to admit, I don't know the specs on the older cars, but is that, that is an all-wheel drive? Or is this, it rear? So GTR is all-wheel drive. Okay. So that's all-wheel drive twin turbo. This is single turbo rear-wheel drive. Okay. Yeah. And another thing too, which, which we, we should touch on is uh, the fact that I had this guy along for the ride. You can't see, but I'm holding up this uh, SRQ 029. So the idea was explore some kinship in deep cut Japanese products that are sort of legendary in their own right. And and this really comes from the 6138, the Panda Chrono, Mm -hmm. vintage Seiko. Uh, And then obviously the Skyline, you know, doesn't, if if you grew up in this, this era, you know the car. Yeah, that's that sounds like an incredible adventure. And I did see the watch on at least one of I don't know if it was stories or reels or whatever, but I think I you know commented to the effect that like I love that watch. That is so sort of under underappreciated by the general, even the general sort of Seiko loving watch public. Not enough people are into the uh, the chronographs. It's a really cool watch. It's true. I mean, the the interesting thing is. And, and I'm working on this now. So obviously the Olympics are, are coming up. And so I'm kind of delving into Seiko's role historically as a timekeeper for events. And th- this is really the story of the chronograph itself, right? There were 64 Olympics. They were the official timekeeper when, when it was in Tokyo last. But they've done everything from the East African Safari Rally. They sponsored a Nissan 240. Uh, in the 70s, 240Z. They've been very active in Japanese motorsport timing things. So like when we talk about Seiko, often in the context that we talk about it, it's divers. It's the watch on your wrist, man. Like, however, there is a whole history of Seiko chronograph watches and devices that, yeah, we, we just don't talk about as much. There's the Kakume, the Panda. There are a few, some of the old speed timers, the Pogue, sort of. But they're in the shadow of the divers, but this watch, I think, and the reason that is, is because I don't think modern chronographs, Seiko's modern chronographs are, are as good as this one, the SRQ. Uh, this is like, this is the, what Seiko chronographs were about. It's bringing it back. So I thought it'd be interesting to sort of explore the kinship on this, this drive. So that, that was a, you know, this goes back to like, how do you cover watches in an interesting way? And I think this is uh, this is how you do that, in my opinion. That's so good. I've done a similar drive on that eighty with a uh, a less powerful but still plucky Impreza, and oh. uh, and that was a lot of fun. I miss it. You know, it's it's uh, one of those things you you try to take advantage of, and 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 you don't know when you'll do it again. That's right, Impreza. That's sweet. Well, that, then that comparison is apt. That yeah, yeah, it definitely hit. Cool. <laughs> what was on the wrist then? Oh my gosh, that was definitely pre pre, you know, whist days. And so, um, I have to imagine it was a Seiko. It was Good a Seiko kinetic, uh, sport 100 model as a titanium, uh, kind of two tone. 
And I still have it because it was, again, like you said, the first real mechanical piece that I ever received was like a high school graduation present. So, yeah, that's right. That's cool. Yeah, there's definitely some kinship there, too, you know. Well, this as an aside, I um, I didn't use it as a wrist check today, but I did pick up a, a new watch a few weeks ago and I got one of the um, the sharp edge GMTs called mm. the, uh, the SPB 225. So it's the yeah. the sort of the brown copper dial um, boutique edition. And that's not here nor there. When I went to get that watch, they had, and I, I wish I'd, you know, made a note of the, the reference number of the nomenclature, but they had one of the newer productions, but sort of referential, you know, to the past chronographs that look similar to yours, but a little bit more like less of a sporty kind of a presentation mm. and a little bit more, I don't know, you know, swank. I mean, it's definitely still a sport watch. I handled that. And uh, Greg, I think I sent some pictures. I don't know if you happen to remember seeing it, but it was it was one of the most incredible pieces and not even for the price, you know, in air quotes, but it was just such a cool thing. I, I it, That put the hook in me. I need to get a Seiko chronograph soon. It, it, it'll happen, I'm sure. So you, you almost left with a couple pieces that day, <laughs> quite literally. I, I, yeah, I almost got that style 60s too, which was would have been a bad idea. But it, those are, frankly, that for what that watch is, I think it's executed better than the um, the Sharp Edge GMT. And you know, in terms of just the overall presentation and and how it works, that the Sharp Edge thing, I, I just liked it because at where else do you know do you find a mechanical sort of quote unquote true GMT movement? You know, for that price. Um, mm. Good you point. know, it's power, power reserve, pointer date, exhibition case back. It's just, it's a neat watch. And, but I came away so impressed with everything they've dropped lately. It's just great stuff. Agreed. Yeah. They've, they've been on fire. Oh, the, the watches have been awesome. The marketing efforts for me are moving away from the direction that speaks directly to me. However, the watches are better than they've ever been. So it's interesting to kind of watch that evolution. Well, I'd like to talk to you offline about that sometime because, I mean, you know, I have some questions. Uh, sort of the elephant in the room as we're doing this podcast is I literally just listened to the Whiskey and Watches podcast that you did. And that was, you know, you kind of t- hinted at that, right? That there's, you know, the marketing feels like it's it's not tightly focused the way it could be given the nature of the watches. And the other thing is it never it never has been. The marketing itself never has been. It. In the past, there really was no, aside from some partnerships and some placements, I don't know if Seiko ever tried to speak to the consumer like us, per se, before directly. And now they're trying. Is it landing? Maybe they need some more time to to kind of refine those efforts, per se. Uh, So I think that that's where they're at. But yeah, I mean, the watches. And at the end of the day, what matters is the watch, right? And the watches are done better than they've ever been done before some of them so that that's really what you know what what counts anyway here's an interesting question i just kind of bounced it around in my head as you were as you guys were kind of going through that too who does a better job marketing to the watch community the watch community itself or the brands wow this is a good this is a great point and there actually is some juiciness here so I will say in, in my early days of Hodinkee, 
So we we kind of acted as a bit of an agency for our own in-house uh, sponsored content, right? So that would a brief, a loose brief would come to the from the brand to us, like what are our objectives? Who do we think is going to buy this watch? And then, okay, it comes in-house. Now, who do we think this watch is for? And produce content around that. In the past, marketing efforts from industry, so the big brands and enthusiasts, which I would say more or less our like mini agency, so to speak, is the enthusiast side. So industry and enthusiasts were very different. Now that a few years have passed and you know, a lot of watch publications have grown up and grown into something big and powerful. They're the industry side mirrors enthusiast side. They've learned how we've done it, right? So they know how to to talk to people now. And and it's funny, like the way photographs even appear, like that some of the flat lay styles, like which you would normally see in the past, come from the website side, like the enthusiast side, now all of a sudden the same style appears on the industry side. Um, so that's an interesting question because I think they're becoming a lot more similar than different. It's fascinating. Yeah, I think, um, you know, to see those start to, you know, come together in that way is, is interesting. And then, um, you know, it kind of speaks, I think, you know, you've referenced this before where, you know, the ears are there, right? The eyes are there. Mm-hmm. Like, pe- you know, people see what's working and, and what people are responding to. Right. Well, I'm going to riff on that question a little bit. I had something um, that I, this is, I don't even know how to describe this, but there's something that the thing that's most appealing about watches to me really is that, um, that emotional connection and the way that certain pieces really kind of uh, hearken to something you know, in your imagination, whether it's something in your past or something you aspire to, and not, not just as a, a consumer, but as a person. And, you know, there are certain watches and certain brands that really like resonate with me because of, you know, my experience or the stuff that I like or whatever. And the question I had for you is how much does sort of the adventure and like romance or romanticism that we invest in these objects play into your appreciation for watches? And then the follow-up to that is to really to kind of carry on with what Greg says, is that like an untapped thing, you know, with, with respect to the marketing, like would, would the big brands be smart to, you know, kind of find that nerd vein and tap into it? So, all right. The the first part of the question, I would say that is almost all of my appreciation for, for watches. I mean, once you're, I, I, my own personal curve is, is all I can really speak about. But I would say that once you have embraced the mechanical fascination and kind of learned enough about it, then put it this way, the, the potential to appreciate and master mentally and conceptualize the mechanical nature of watches is a lot less than to appreciate the romance and adventure and stories behind it. Like that's an infinite pool of, I say stories that's like, you know, industry speak, but infinite pool of wisdom, lore experience to draw from. So the second part of the question, is it untapped? There are some brands that, that do a decent job at uh, capturing that. But the problem is, that is a little too authentic 
So like that has to happen in a genuine way. And if you try to kind of put, you know, uh, guardrails on things and steer the narrative in a certain direction, like a lot the, the conversation that I won't touch, not because I don't really want to, but just because you can't these days, like a lot of brands have pretty dark history too. Like, and that's all right. Like part of history, the interesting thing about history is you can't change it, right? You cannot rewrite it. It happened. So you can either appreciate it, respect it and understand it in a nuanced way, or you can ignore it. We, we do the latter, which is okay in this industry. And that's fine. No one wants to address that. But a lot of the times you find that when you do, when you start poking around and looking into the history of watches and so forth, sometimes it isn't always pretty. And I think a good way to avoid any of that is to not delve into your past or cherry pick the good stuff, which again, like watches aren't so serious. We're not talking, you know, geopolitical theory here. So it's fine. It's fine to kind of pick the things that make you feel good. But I would say the problem with brands trying to tap into this element of lore and so forth, when it starts to feel forced, I don't think the enthusiast community will actually respond positively to that. Unless you, I would say a good example of is Tudor, uh, the video that James did. Excellent piece, and that's somewhere in the middle. I mean, the brand definitely, they, they put their own money into restoring the watch and, and helping with the effort too. That is where it's done in a very, it's done well, a genuine fashion that benefits all parties. But, you know, this buzzword these days, performative allyship and stuff like that, like it would almost feel like, imagine uh, Hodinkee had nothing to do with that. Or, and they like, they dialed up, like Tudor just went in and dialed up this, the emotional element saying, we did this. It just wouldn't feel as good, would it? It, it, it kind of has to come from the enthusiast community. So that's my take on it. However, like I wouldn't, I would love to see brands have better on staff historians, not better, just lean into it a little bit more, like, like treat it as a matter of record, uh, everything this way, like in 20 years, someone can come and, uh, you know, ask the questions that I ask brands now. And they'll have an answer and we'll know, you know, I think that's important because watches are important enough now to be treated as a little piece of history or whatever, right? There's a huge culture around watches now. So we should, you know, be better historians, all of us, I think. I don't know why I keep thinking of this, but that old paddock ad at print ad, you know, or it's, what does it say? It's something along the, to the effect of you never really own a paddock. You're just holding it for the next generation. Right. And I get the sentiment of it, but almost to your point of it felt, you know, forced, right? Like you're kind of trying to impose this, you know, uh, uh, relationship, you know, to the piece. That, so that's a chicken and egg thing. I would say like, you're, you're totally right. It, like when they say it, it's the thing is like, Certain people can get away with saying certain things. Certain people can't. So like when brands say that, it feels, you know, it feels off. But if enthusiasts say it, yeah, we know it's true. You're going to pass that watch down, you know? I'm sorry. Uh, the listeners can't see me, but I was just laughing in the background to myself. Be- I'm, I'm sure you've seen the memes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> For that so ad. That's a whole, I mean, you guys should yeah. do an episode exploring watch memedom. Cause it's, this is interesting. Like, you know, you've arrived or made it when 
memes can be made about your industry and they're genuinely funny, they're smart, and they become like a, a second language to us all, right? We can we can speak and meme to each other, which is crazy. Yeah, totally. Well, I so I'm a believer based on your answer to that question that maybe, you know, what it is that appeals to me would probably be spoiled if it was something that was, you know, the brands took it on themselves to force feed me. But the fact is, I mean, there's still some a lot of brands, probably the big brands, you know, that have really interesting histories, good and bad. Um, one of the most, I think, storied brands out there, especially with respect to history. And you and I, you know, spoiler alert, we've kind of DM'd about this back and forth over the mm-hmm. past year or so. But you, maybe what, in the past year or so, you have nailed down as a personal watch one of the newer GMT masters. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. That's kind of the daily now. So the Pepsi. Yeah. So I think Pepsi or not, I think we, I personally, I love that watch and pretty much every iteration of that watch ever, you know, for reasons of my own, I I think we have a shared passion for that. Why did you end up going that route and not in the direction of something, you know, like a Submariner? Uh, So a lot of it is closing the loop on like a a childhood thing. Like, like most things, I think a lot stems from younger years, developmental years. And I remember seeing the ads. It's classic, you know, like see this ad in a publication you like. And it, it the, the interesting follow-up to that is more, it worked on me, right? Like I saw the, the Chuck Yeager ads. I sought out a GMT Master 2. These days, there are no Chuck Yeager ads. It's like the Cosmopolitan watch and there's no marketing efforts around this. So I wonder like the reputation that I perceive the GMT Master 2 having? Is that the reputation of the future too? And I think the answer is no, which is just an interesting aside. But I think I like it for the same reasons you do. And that goes back to the early years of the watch, starting in 54, all the way up to, I would say, Vietnam War, and then even supersonic era, uh, the the classic Concord ad. I'd say that we're talking about, you know, marketing efforts by brands. Rolex did it right. They really did. And some of the the Alpine, like the mountaineering ads they did, I mean, not for the GMT, but they just, yeah, they're, they're well done. They, they say a lot without shoving it down your throat. And, and the positioning of the watches is right on. And I think what's interesting, again, a chicken or an egg thing, the GMT Master specifically seems to appear in adventure lore a lot. Like, explorers, sailors, soldiers. Is that because it's a Rolex first and that's because Rolex is popular and that's what they buy? Or is it because this is the watch that inspires those sort of things or speaks directly to this audience? I don't know the answer to that. And it doesn't particularly matter because the end product is, yeah, this watch in it, it it has a built-in lore of you know, being used by test pilots and so forth. So I think that's that's why I love this watch. Uh, and yeah, am I a Rolex fan? Yeah, I like what I, I will say, like holding most of them in my hand, there aren't many Swiss watches that are produced on an industrial level that are that quality, but I'm really a GMT Master II fan if we have to get down to it. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the deal with that watch. I love that. Yeah. I think uh, that just even that last point you made, you know, Matt and I have talked about that a little bit too. Um, you, 
nobody really has to be a brand apologist and nobody mm. has to be sort of a brand, you know, fanboy or a brand critic, you know, um, uh, you know, an objective critic and, uh, you can like things within the catalog or the portfolio, um, and appreciate them for what they are rather than, you know, uh, being emblematic of, you know, the bigger brand or the, or the bigger kind of ethos that it represents. So, um, mm. I agree with you though. I love the GMT master Two. GMT master line within the, uh, the Rolex catalog. Yeah. I've had one in the past. That's my watch that got away. And, um, I would like to, to add one back. Um, right now I, I've got, I basically have the, the, you know, the, uh, 16, 570 polar and I've got a really good one. You know, it's a really crispy and good provenance and RSC service history and stuff. And I'm, I still, every other day, I swear I wake up and I'm like, okay, what, what can I flip and what can I put with that watch to get into a GMT two at the prices that they command now on the secondary market. And I don't know, I, I need to take a page out of the, the Cole Pennington book and just go get my name on some lists and stop, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid that I'm never going to get an allocation because maybe I will, but like you, I, I love those watches. For me, um, I did a, uh, so I have a, a degree in aeronautics and aerospace, like system science stuff. And I had to do a, you know, a huge uh, paper, you know, on, uh, I won't go into it, but it was basically on the history of Pan Am and air travel in the Americas mm-hmm. and cool. kind of the tie, the tie in between Boeing and United and Pan Am's origination. And it, it, even back then, you know, doing that research, seeing, you know, how the, the watch and timekeeping was so important and having been a pilot in my past life. Yeah. That's nothing. No other single watch speaks to me like that. Mm. If I had a, if I had a grail, it would probably be the new root beer. Ooh, good one. That's a yeah. good one. Yeah. That's uh, the, you know, Clint Eastwood, Firefox, kind of the modern, the modern thing. But, um, and one day I, I think we're, you and I in the background are like, of course, Cole did all the work, Greg, but like, um, we had some DMS about a stopwatch that ended up like after three months of trying to contact people finally ended up as like an actual story on Hodinkee, which was cool. That, that's, that and, was you, man. That was you credit where credit's due. Well, you know, you finally, they answered your call. So again, Greg, by way of background, I was like, okay, I got this ace in the hole. Cause I went to school. I was at ROTC debt in Arizona with that. I won't mention his name, but he's a guy who's a, uh, a Thunderbirds alum. And at the time in the modern era, you know, it was 20 years ago that he was with the Thunderbirds, but now he's, he was, you know, commanding general of Luke or not at the air force base, but the, the wing there. And I, public relations didn't even like, I don't, I don't know if they ever even opened my emails, but Cole got it done. I would love to, one day we're going to have to try to hook up with Larry Vickers or two lamb or one of those guys that I think they've both hinted in responses to, I think one or both of us like, Oh yeah, yeah, there's a special history and special forces, you know, and we, we would talk about it. So one day we'll get them on or, or put us together. That would be awesome. The grail story. Totally. Totally. Anyway. Well, Hey, what's on the horizon for you? Any new, any watches that you're looking at any assignments you've kind of already hinted at a a significant project. So that, so that is kind of, yeah. Dominating the, uh, yeah. Any time that I have to kind of just ideate. Um, one thing that I think is very much like up our alley that I'm working on now together with the Restorian. I don't know if you guys follow him, but you definitely should. Um, we are 
putting together a catalog of, of so you know Hodinkee we do watch spotting and you know sometimes it tends to be celebrity this that the other thing but one area that I'm really interested in, in is uh, looking in government archives so we're in the midst of putting together a pretty interesting catalog of watch spotting using yeah publicly available images in you know go beyond like you know everyone has done the the nasa you know looked around the nasa image archives and so forth but what about some of the the lesser known agencies that are that also have archives available to the public so kind of a cool one right now and we're unearthing things all the time like whoa that that watch was was uh you know worn during this era even or by these people so i won't give it too much away but that that's coming up and that'll be very cool so like all you know the we read about yeah you know, the Paul Newman this but well the watches were doing way cooler stuff than appearing on in, in movies I will say and and we've uncovered a good bit of them and uh, that's another sort of longer term project that we've been working on but I think that'll that'll come out yeah middle of the summer ish so that'll be you know uh, a collection of photographs that I doubt anyone it's not that you can't see them before it's that you just you have to go look for them and looking for them takes a long time to sift through these, these archives. And then when you do find the watch, you do the research and uh, it turns out, yeah, well, Hey, there's a story there. So that's something interesting coming up that's on the horizon that I'm kind of working on. And then obviously the, the whole uh, Thailand thing, which is involved. It's, it's, it's pretty, it's a big project. So, and watches I'm looking at hard to say, right? It, it's not that, things don't capture my attention, but I've almost shifted into a mode where watches are the way you think about watches. Isn't necessarily owning them anymore. I'm kind of like, like with the GMT and I'm good. I'm set. Uh, watches come in and you get to wear them for a little while, but you know that they have to go back too. So once you do that a few times and you warm up to the idea that it's the, the temporary joy and the catch and release thing is, nice like you can wear this watch you can appreciate it and then when it goes back that's okay um that happens with personal watches too kind of it spills over and you understand that like well you have your own watch every day and i've had that i mean prior to that this this watch my my dad gave me it's a bond um i was wearing that every day for a long time i did get this this uh, the rowing blazer seiko just kind of a fun nice. one been wearing that just to kind of you know your, your your summer vibe watch but in terms of looking for watches i would say it's almost the opposite for me i'm, I'm looking not to buy watches i'm looking to appreciate them every way that i can without owning them <laughs> you said something earlier um you know watches aren't serious right this isn't geopolitical you know um uh you know political affairs that we're talking about here. And somebody, as I saw the rowing blazer Seiko start to populate Instagram, I commented on our friend Torological Chronicles from the Out of Time podcast. I said, making watches fun again. You know, it does, it's yeah, not, it's, it's great. It's fun. It's beautiful. Exactly. Totally. And, and I'm all about that. Like, I think we need that, right? Yeah, we definitely do. We definitely do. I, I love the sentiment too. I mean, you know, especially when you're, you're in the industry, um, I, if that's fair to see, fair, fair to say, um, and when then you, you're also, when you're a really active enthusiast, I, you know, quite frankly, I feel like there's times where you, you get a, a sense of, oh, what's next? Or, oh my gosh, I can't miss out on this one. Or, 
you know, this was the colorway I was always waiting for, or, you know, like this is an opportunity I can't miss. And, and it's refreshing to hear somebody say, no, I just want to appreciate what I have, or, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not actively looking, you know, to acquire things all the time. And I think that's a, a healthy perspective. Yeah. I bought the, the synchron. I'm still, still not bored of that. And that wasn't too long ago. So I'm, I won't be due for a, a good while, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Shiny, shiny object syndrome, uh, not always in effect over here. So, you know, as you know, Cole, our, our pod is, is, uh, is watch focused. Um, but we love putting it together and pairing it with uh, good booze and beer. And we're just curious, you know, can you recommend anything from your travels? You've been on a lot of places re- recently, um, any favorite microbrew spots, uh, you know, breweries, distilleries, anything that you've really enjoyed, um, you know, from wherever in, in this great country that you've been traveling. Let me think here. Uh, actually, there is something. And, and I'm sure like a lot of listeners will know this, but it was a new to me thing. In Ocean City, Maryland, the orange crush was invented. Yes, like to, yeah. I, I thought that was like just a screwdriver or something like that. But it's not. It's a magical creation that goes down nice and easy and, and fits that East Coast summer vibe so well. Yes. And I had one for the first time. I went down to go see the, the Ocean City Air Show. And, um, which Mace was there, by the way, Matt, um, nice. flying that day. And, uh, yeah, basically my buddy was like, uh, oh, let's go to the, the original orange crush bar. And it was cool. You're drinking your orange crush, watching the, the yachts roll in and out of this little Marina here. And I would say that is a drink that, uh, the ethos is cool that I like, but on the practical level, it actually is very good. Like that's a good, easy drink and summer drink. So that's my pick for uh, booze recommendations around around the area, around the Amazing. country. I guess. Yeah. So good, so good. That's so unique and um, and very fitting. That was a great one. Right on. Well, hey, I, um, Greg, I know ordinarily we would just toss over to wrap up and closing notes, but before we do that, can we do like a quick five minute, three minute, you know, five question kind of thing with Cole real fast? I'm dying to hear it. So let's, let's, uh, let's make it happen. All right. So again, speaking of dying, I'm, I'm dying slightly that our buddies at whiskey and watches pipped us with the, uh, the coal appearance, but that's okay. Cause we're treating, yeah, we're taking this and kind of using it as like a, uh, a version 2.0. So one of the things that they'd asked you about was, and I thought this was really interesting was kind of, you know, the behind the scenes, how does an operation like Hodinky work in terms of, you know, assigning stories, who does what do you guys gravitate toward different things? Do you call your shots or, you know, whatever. So for the purpose of this little exercise, Cole, what I want you to do is think of yourself as the assignment editor. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give okay. you like a, a general topic or like a quick 10 second pitch. And you tell me who you assign it to on the, the Hodinky staff and it can include you. Okay. So you perfect. can, you can, yeah. So I, I have some ideas. I bet our listeners would have some ideas, but I'm curious as to what you say. So, okay. Number one, you ready? Okay. So number one, Dornbluth and son is about to launch a 40 millimeter Let's just say aluminum chronograph. Ooh, okay. Who gets that story? Jack. Jack gets the story for sure. Right on. Cool, cool. The next one. Okay, and a little bit of backstory. I think everybody was kind of like, huh, with the Rolex Explorer 2, right? This is the 50th anniversary. The new watch is very, very, very slightly reprofiled and it has a modern movement. But otherwise, there's nothing visually to distinguish it. 
I personally think there's a chance that they're going to surprise us with something later in the year, like maybe a, a low production, low rate production, maybe with a different color hand or something like that. Let's just say hypothetically that does happen. There is a 50th anniversary Explorer 2 that's a little different. Who gets that story? That's a, a softball one. I mean, that's James all day long. <laughs> I knew it. That's great. <laughs> okay. A new Creedor minute repeater in Tantalum. Ooh, okay. I would say I, I would actually give that to John Buse because Jack took the door in Bluth already, or I would do like a dual take John and Jack. I like that. Got it. So I'm keeping my own counsel on this, but Jack was my pick too. Yeah. All right. This is the one I think a lot of the, uh, the tool watch nerds want. Tudor, Pelagos, GMT, and 40 millimeter. All right. Yeah. I, so this is interesting. I don't want that one. I don't want that article. Uh, even though I love GMT, I like Tudor. I think that would be best served. Mm, that's, that's a really hard one to say. Uh, James comes to mind. I come to mind. But I think the best way to cover that one would be maybe give i would have someone totally like cara i would ask Kara to cover it like someone totally different the tool watch people will i mean we won't be able to tell you anything you don't know or add perspective that you don't have right but maybe there's a way there's some way to see this watch that i didn't even think of or no one thought of yet or and i think someone like Kara or i don't know some freelancer or something would uh would handle that one well outside the box that's really good Cool. All right. The last one. Okay. So this is, think of this as more of a people story. So imagine this old, old, crusty, cool old guy, old uh, country boy from the central coast of California. Uh, uh, I see where this is v- going. <laughs> Vietnam Navy vet. He's a, a pilot in the airlines, uh, air racer at Reno. Um, he's a winemaker now. This guy does exist. Okay. Um, who would interview him? on the premises of his vineyard and winery operation to talk about his Breitling aerospace or a, let's just say a GMT two or something like that in Paso Robles, California. Mm, okay. I will say, so I went to Paso for the first time uh, this year and went to the uh, Warbird museum right outside Paso and talked to someone who volunteers there who actually sort of matches the, uh, the description, <laughs> I doubt it's him, but in my mind, I always thought the guy that I talked to would would have some good story. So I would say I'm already kind of on this this beat or this story. So I'll take this one all day long. <laughs> okay, so I'll, I'll bet dollars to donuts that that is the guy that I'm thinking of because he, he does volunteer there at no the Estrella Warbird Museum. Yeah, yeah exactly. And Okay, so that I did pick you for that story. So, <laughs> well, yeah, that's a story that I literally thought about writing. Like, I thought, like, this is there's something here. So, that's crazy. Like, this is the first time we're talking about this, too. You didn't tee that so, one up or anything. No, no, not at all. So, spoiler alert. And sorry, I'm going to, Greg, I don't know if I told you, I think I told you the, the run up to this, maybe, but I found out today. So, this guy's winery, again, this is a real person. I won't mention his name or his winery, except, you know, back channel. But um, again, uh, 
I'm on his mailing list and they've reached out to a bunch of people and we're like, hey, if you buy a case of red wine between this day and this day leading up to the 4th of July, um, you know, you'll enter into a contest to win a flight in the restored C-47 that they have at the museum with this guy who's the pilot. So I'm all about it. I was like, yeah, whatever. I mean, I'm your customer anyway. My my brother-in-law lives on the other side of his hill and they've done like, you know, grape deals for sure. So sign me up. So anyway, I got the email today that I won. So no way. Yeah. Whoa, so I'm, I'll be going on that flight, but I think that that guy would be an amazing interview. I He's so deadpan about his watches. You know, I mean, he's not a big watch guy at all, but he's just the most fascinating character. It's like, it's Hodinky material all day long. Well, let's, let's make something happen. But I, I have a strange feeling that it is the same guy. I really think it is. Uh, was the guy's but, name? Sh- yeah. Um, was he named it, after? Yeah. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't oh, remember we'll, the guy's we'll name. We'll talk after. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Dude, but that's so crazy. That's so freaking yeah, and cool. huge congrats. I mean, the C-47, you know, there, there are more than a few seats on that. In fact, it's lying. Yeah, well, I, th- with, uh, <laughs> I think um, it was it was like the, uh, I think twelve winners, something along mm, those lines, cool, or maybe cool. 13, 13 yeah. winners. Yeah. So I was among the winners. So I'll I'll keep you posted. And there's a lot of really cool YouTube stuff about that airplane. Wow. So anyhow, huge congrats. All right, that's well, awesome. That's well, thank you, thank you. I didn't mean to bring that back around to me, but um, thank you for answering those questions. That is fun, Greg. Do you want to take us home and bring us into wrap up? Yeah, no, that's a hard one to follow up on. That's going to be so much fun. Can't wait to uh, follow along and, uh, and and hear about your experience. Uh, really cool tasting experience last week. Um, I think I'd referenced it, you know, one or two times, maybe leading up to, but um, at Maestro here in Pasadena, they hosted the uh, the first tasting for a new brand called Agua del Sol uh, mezcal here, um, in Pasadena. Um, and, uh, the, the kind of one of the brain, the, the brain, you know, the brains of the brand and, and kind of the person who helps organize this co-op of, uh, mezcaleros in Oaxaca. His name is, uh, Felix Monterosa. He was here to sort of tell his story and share about how the brand came together and, and why he thinks it's important, uh, not only to the mezcaleros and the, you know, the communities, but also to share sort of this, uh, you know, share this with people here in the States. And so that was really cool. I think he's been here for like two weeks and he's ma- he's actually painting a mural at the, uh, the Madre restaurant in West Hollywood, um, which is really fantastic. And, and I think there's some, uh, some events going around this week, uh, over there as well, but, uh, really great juice, uh, had a fun time with some, uh, some great friends and, um, you know, looking forward to, uh, you know, more things like this where we can get together in person again. Well, that's fantastic. I think, you know, for our listeners here in Southern California, it's, it's a breath of fresh air to see how things are kind of opening. And, um, I'll ask everybody, just be patient with your favorite spots. Most of their, you know, their good employees haven't come back yet or they don't have staff, but, uh, be patient and, you know, get out there and visit some of these restaurants and and good bars and, and breweries. Matt, what do you, uh, what do you have, uh, sort of on the wrap up? So I've got the ultimate nerd recommendation um, for a long time. I mean, probably 20 or 30 years, I've been a member of this really esoteric thing, the U.S. Navy Institute, United States Naval Institute, USNI. Um, You'll find it as like USNI.org, I think, on the internet. And if you're with the membership, um, you get a 
a publication that they release every week. In fact, give me one second. I hope he's got hard copies. Yeah, actually, I said oh, wow. every week. It's every it's every month, but this is you know USNI proceedings. So this is proceedings of the U.S. Naval Institute, and you know for people that are sort of like us or in the in the, especially in the watch space in the same way that Cole and I are, and to a certain extent, I think Greg is, especially with like cars and stuff. But with Cole and I, it's like history and and aircraft and aviation and stuff like that. This is the Navy's digest of information on all of the sea services. So it's going to be the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Coast Guard, et cetera. And it's great for kind of keeping up with like the technology. There's a lot of really good, well thought out essays, a lot of historical effort, um, references, a lot of book reviews, um, you know, for if you want to read about something like the, you know, the destroyer action in the Solomons in World War II, you know, this, this will tell you about those books. Submarine ships, history, all that stuff, all that geek stuff that's vaguely watch adjacent. Um, it's a fairly reasonable uh, annual subscription. I've had one for years and it's uh, it's just, it's a really cool thing. If you listen to like the Land Jam podcast, for instance, you need to have this. So that's my recommendation. USNI, United States Naval Institute, a membership, or if you can just get a subscription to proceedings. Very cool. Mm, that's a good one. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out for sure. Um, so I guess I ought to recommend something too. Sure. And, uh, I will say along the drive, which, which acted as a nice contrast to what was going on in front of me. I listened to voices from DARPA. Have you heard of that one? That podcast? I, I have not. Um, it's, I've listened to skunk works. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of similar. Uh, no, actually voices from DARPA is their it's less narrative it's it's literally it's their program managers get interviewed by it's it's an official production of DARPA so a little dry of course but it's interesting in that they have their program managers on from different spaces and they talk about their path to DARPA cuz DARPA's kind of shrouded in a mystery right but once you listen to the podcast and and so forth i mean you see it's the stuff they do, sure, but like how to get in, their general goals and so forth, pretty, you know, what you see is what you get, actually. So they have their program managers on, I don't know, there's maybe 30 episodes, and talk about some of the work they've done. And you learn some very interesting stuff all the way from, yeah, obviously nanotech to addressing the current ufo questions like everything is out there and you have brilliant minds discussing things that we are we access on an enthusiast level they're on the you know research level and the, the space between those two things is what this podcast addresses so that that's my recommendation voices from darpa i'll definitely check that out yeah that sounds super cool Right on. Well, hey, I think with that, we are uh, just over an hour, which is kind of our target spot. But Cole, this was fantastic. Really, thank you so much. I'm glad you were able to make it to Utah uneventfully, um, albeit uh, quickly and fun in that awesome car. And uh, we'd love to do this again with you. We'll definitely be looking out for that video project. Tell uh, the yeah. editors to hurry up. 
<laughs> well, we're, you're, we're you're talking patiently to waiting for that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of on me. So, well, uh, well, thank you. Yeah, it's been a great, great, great time chatting with you all. And yeah, for for sure, a long time coming. That's what I would say. And it's nice to to finally get this out there and dig into the things we're all interested in. So, thank you for having me on. Oh man, keep up the awesome work, Cole. Really. Cheers. Yeah, I. At, well, hey, before we say cheers, just at the risk of fangirling. Um, you know, I don't know. There's, there is a certain, I don't know, vibe that you like from your favorite writers. Cole, you're certainly one of my favorite writers. I think you and James would be, you know, on like number one, number two pick or tied for first or however you want to put it in the, the dodgeball game of horological writing. Wow. So it's an honor. It's truly an honor. Thank you. Well, we mean it. And thanks very much. We, we love it. Take care. All right. Cheers, guys. Cheers to you. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help. You can find us on Instagram at Spirit of Time Podcast and contact us at spiritoftimepodcast at gmail.com. As always, please drink responsibly. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.